Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Will you pray with me for just a moment before we begin? Our Father, we would not come to your word without asking you to give us afresh and anew your spirit to speak to it, because we know that he alone can, he who gave it to us, can interpret it to our hearts. And we'd like today for you to speak to us. More important for us to hear your voice than it is for us to hear anything else. So somehow in your great mercy and your goodness, let your voice be heard in each of our own inner hearts, and we'll give you praise. Very interesting to live as long as I have and to have spent, uh, never gotten to the place where I really sat down and worked my way through the Book of Romans seriously. I think one of the reasons was I always thought everybody else had already done that, and so uh, it was pretty well covered. Because you know that the great uh, theologians of the church and of church history, they've turned again and again to Romans, and it has been such a vital book in the, in the course of Christian history. It could very easily be said that on the basis of that, that Romans is the most important book in the New Testament. In Christian history, there's a lot to support that. And if you're a Protestant, it seems quite obvious because it was the book of Romans that was so pivotal in the Reformation. But at other periods, like in the 20th century, it was a commentary of Karl Barth that made such a radical change in the theological atmosphere of Europe and then of this country as well. And uh, so uh, it is a very strategic book, and as we said, it usually has been understood, and this is the way I thought of it, is uh, under Luther's influence that it is a book about justification by faith, with the emphasis primarily on how I can be justified, how I can stand before God acquitted in spite of my sin and in spite of my deserving his judgment. How can I be clear? But as I have lived with the book of Romans, it's very interesting. There's a lot more in the book of Romans uh, than there, than the sections on justification. And if you will just think about it for a few minutes, you'll remember that apart from one paragraph in the eighth chapter, and a brief one at that, the subject of justification is dealt with primarily in those first five chapters, and you have eleven more chapters in the book of Romans that deal with a number of other things. The question that came to my mind as I worked with it was not, if I'm going to be faithful to the book of Romans, not, am I justified? But the question would be, I think Paul would ask, am I a believer? And he would put it in the present tense. Am I at the present time believing? Are you believing? The way Paul develops this in the fifth verse, which is in the introduction to the book, Paul speaks about his own purpose in life. And you will notice that he says the purpose of his apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves, 
who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's interesting he doesn't say, I'm called to bring people to justification. I'm called to bring people to the obedience of faith and to bring all the nations to the obedience of faith. It's interesting that he's consistent enough that that's his last word in the book of Romans. Because if you will turn to the closing page in chapter 16, you will find in verses 25 to 27 this climax to the book. Now to him, his benediction, who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about, what's it all about? To bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Now, uh, as he writes to the church at Rome, you will notice that he speaks with gratitude about them. And his gratitude about them has to do with their faith. First, I, in verse 8 of the first chapter, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This is the thing that's striking to him about this church that he longs so much to visit. Now, why is it that he wants to come to that church? You'll notice in number three, he says, I want to come so that you and I, the believers in Rome and myself, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, uh, both yours and mine. His, his reason then for wanting to visit them has to do with the matter of their faith. Now, uh, this is what the key to his gospel is. If you will look at uh, the passage where he is speaking about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, item four. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Now, I'm reading the, the translation which I used here is the New Revised Standard Version. And so the NRSV says, Salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But one of the interesting things is you can raise a question as to whether that's a good translation of that verse. Because what the Greek says is, he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who is believing. And I'd like for you to pin that down in your mind, because that's part a major thrust that I want to make that when he speaks about faith in the book of Romans, unless he is speaking about Abraham, who believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, he uses a present participle, pistuon. And you know enough, this audience knows enough about, uh, about grammar to know that a participle does not have to do with a single act. It is a state, and it is a continuing state. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to those who are in a state of believing and continue in that state of believing. To pistuinti. For it is by faith that we see the righteousness of God in verse 17. And uh, there it, it is interesting for in the righteousness of, for the, the righteousness of God, 
mistake in the end. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Out And the Greek there is very interesting. The righteousness of God is revealed out of faith into faith. The RSV says through faith for faith. But the prepositions are very significant. The first one is out of faith. Faith is the source out of which the vision of the righteousness of God comes. And the purpose of it is in order to increase our faith. So it is from faith to faith. Now, uh, you will notice that uh, it's the means to a righteous life as you come to the end of that very passage where he says, the NRSV through says, he who through faith is righteous shall live. But the text says that he who is righteous will live out of faith. At least that's one of the ways that that can be translated. It seems to me that it's closer to the heart of the book of Romans to say that it is out of our faith that we are able to live, out of the faith which God works in our hearts through his Spirit, that we are able to live a righteous life. Now, he says, faith is what makes us participants in the benefits of the atonement of the death and the resurrection of Christ. We get a very unusual passage in the close of chapter 3, which is a crucial passage in the book. And it has to do with the cross. It has to do with the death of Christ. And there are two major words which are used here, that in the cross we find the redemption, and in the cross we find the atonement. And uh, so Paul is saying, it is faith that enables us to experience this redemption that comes through Christ and through his sacrifice for us, and it is through Christ that an atonement is made for our sins so that it is through faith that what I like to think of is that we are able to be participants in the benefits of the passion of our Lord. It is through faith that all that he did for us there can take place within our lives. You will notice that throughout Romans, he plays the the theme, and it's in this paragraph, it is not through what we do that the benefits come to us, It is not through our works. It is faith that permits Christ to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, what only God can do. And, you know, I think the greatest longing of the human heart is not to be able to do something for God, but to have God to do something within our hearts, that which we cannot do for ourselves and no one else can do except God. God to be at work in your life, the place to look is not just something you do, but your personal relationship of trust in him, you look to your faith. Now this is very close to the heart of Paul. His desire is to get us to the place where we are centered on Christ. Now uh, this uh, may be just a little subtle, but, but stick with me for a moment on this. There's a very interesting psychological shift that comes if you move from concentrating on justification to concentrating on faith. Because when your interest is primarily justification, the center of your concern is here. It is the self. But if uh, what you're dealing with is faith, and that's the center of your concern, then immediately, very easily, you move into the question of, Faith in what? Faith in who? 
And in that way, Paul, I think this is one of his reasons for his emphasis here, is that Paul's concern is to bring me to the place where I am centered not on myself, but I am centered on him because it is only in him that I can get what I need. And so the big question is not the bigger question than am I justified? The bigger question is, do I believe? Am I believing? And what do I believe? And in whom do I believe? Paul's desire is to bring us to a life centered on Christ, a life that is drawn by faith in Christ and from his spirit. Now, with that as background, let's look at the ways Paul uses the term faith in the book of Romans. And I'm going to start with a a passage that is at the end of Romans and is not usually looked upon as a passage in relation to faith. But I think it is something that we need to uh, pay attention to because of the way we in the church tend to uh, deal with the subject of faith. Look with me at the 31st item, which comes in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 16. Here Paul is making a pitch for what we would speak of as sound doctrine. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties. Now, he has given his greetings in the 16th chapter to the people that he knew in Rome, and he's coming to his close. And uh, one of the concerns for Paul always was for the unity of the church to which he was writing. So he says, I appeal to you to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties, in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, those who create dissensions by opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Now, the word faith does not occur in that passage, but there is a word that that is related to it. And that's the word which in this translation is doctrine. And the Greek term is didache. Oftentimes it is translated teaching. And so we speak about the didache of the church as the teaching of the church. And so what we have here is where Paul is speaking about what we speak of as the doctrine, the faith, Christian faith, what the church believes, and what it is that binds us together. Because it's very easy to forget that the thing that creates unity is not organizational relationship. All you have to do is look at the typical modern American denomination now with all the splits that are in it. What gives real koinonia, what gives real oneness of heart and brings us together is commonality of faith where we believe the same things and ideological commonness. And so he is making that pitch so that when people want to have conflict over the basic teachings of the church of the gospel, you be careful about them because they will bring division to you. Now, how important is good theology? I think we need to say a word at that point because 
It's very easy for some people to say, well, theology is not really significant. But I I don't think you can ever accuse Paul of believing that because uh, he very clearly feels that if you do not think correctly, you will not live correctly. If you do not think correctly, say, about the cross of Christ, you will not know what the cross of Christ is supposed to bring to you. And if you do not think right about the cross of Christ, you will not believe for, trust for, what Christ shed his blood and suffered in order that we might receive. So there is a connection between good sound theology and good Christian living, uh, our being the people that God wants us to be. And so Paul is making that pitch here. Now, an interesting thing is the way he concludes that paragraph. I'd never seen this before. It's amazing how uh, you can read the scriptures as long as I've been reading the scriptures and then read and find things that have been there all along. You've never even, you never even noticed. But do you notice the closing sentence in that paragraph? He says, For while your obedience is known to all so that I may rejoice over you, I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, what I want to tantalize you with is why does he save Satan under your feet? It's not Christ's feet. I think what we have here is Paul is bringing to the conclusion of his letter a theme which he picks up earlier, that in Christ we are to be victorious. We are to have deliverance from the power of sin in our lives, and there's a freedom that we are to experience, and Christ gives it to us, but it is to take place within us. And as I read it, what I thought of was, if you believe that Christ died simply to forgive your sins, that's what you'll trust him for. But if you take the word of the angel that came to Joseph, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Then you've got a different subject, and you've got a different message. And you will, if you believe that, you will will be trusting Christ to do something for you beyond pardon and beyond the typical explanation of, of justification. So the first thing that I want to mention is what Paul is, and I think there's no question, this is why Paul wrote the book of Romans, in order to spell out some of the nature of Christian faith and, you know, the influence. I don't have to tell you the influence of the uh, book of Romans on doctrine in the church across the centuries of the church. But now there's a second way that Paul uses faith in the book of Romans, it seems to me. If the first one is theological, that deals with basic ideas, the second one is more historical, and it deals with events, with the acts of God in the history of of God's relationship to his creation. Uh, And here he speaks about faith that is rooted in the revelatory history of Israel that culminated in Christ in the cross, and in the resurrection. You cannot study the book of Romans without getting involved in the question of the role of Israel 
in God's redemptive program because it is there. Whether you talk about the law or whether you talk about Israel uh, more in terms of what you have in 9, 10, and 11. You will notice the emphasis on Israel in the book. Uh, Paul was a Jew. And it's significant that when he met Christ, he didn't cease to be a Jew. He stepped into a new world, but it was not a world that caused him to repudiate his heritage. In fact, there was something about Christ that sealed for him his Jewishness, so that there was a sense in which he was almost more firmly a Jew after he met Christ than he was before. Now, he had very different understanding of the role of Israel and the relationship of Gentiles to all of this, because now he's the apostle to the Gentiles, but his, but he is very conscious of the fact that his background and what makes him what he is and what enables him to understand Christ fully comes from his Jewishness. So there is no forsaking of his Jewishness. He is one of the elect people. That people elected to be a light for the whole world. And Christ is a part for him of a historical chain that started with Abraham, Moses, Israel, the prophets, that culminated in Jesus. Christ for Paul did not stand alone. If you will look at uh, the, the passage in 9, 1 through 8. Very interesting passage. It's a magnificent passage uh, in terms of helping in our understanding of Paul and of, of the book of Romans. He says now he has brought us through chapter 8, and he has spoken about uh, no, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish, how does he feel about Israel that has crucified Christ? The Israel that now he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's asking the Romans to pray for him so that when he gets to Jerusalem, the temple authorities won't kill him So before he gets to Rome. And he knows the hostility that's there. But what's his attitude toward these who want to kill him? He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. My kindred according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong. Now look at the succession of things that belong to Israel. First of all, the adoption. Now, I think we need to say that what we're dealing here is the, the familial metaphor. We tend to think of Romans as the one where the judicial, the juridical, the forensic metaphor is supreme. The judge on the bench with the law book, and we're broken the law, and that has to be solved. But you will notice when he talks about Israel, the first thing he says is, they have the adoption. You will remember when God said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, to let my firstborn son go. Let my before, my firstborn son, go. And when he said firstborn son, he, he meant that he was going to have some other sons that would get us in. 
So there's a great missionary text, you see. But uh, he says, and if you don't let my firstborn son go, then it'll be son for son, and I'll have to deal with your son. So Israel was looked upon as children of God, and he is the father. So behind this passage, you have the fatherhood of God. Now, the next thing is the glory. Now, I think it's fair to understand the glory here in terms of the presence in the tabernacle, the glory of God that came down and filled that holy of holies in the tabernacle, which was the center of Israel's existence and uh, It was in the center of their camp. And then the covenants that we get at Sinai, the giving of the law, the worship, the service, the sacrificial system, all that which was so helpful in understanding so that when Christ came, he could be understood. And the promises that uh, through this stream of Israel, all the nations of the earth will find blessing. They are to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And the patriarchs, the word here, of course, is the fathers. There is the fathers. Uh, And then he says, and last of all, the one who comes according to the flesh out of them, the Messiah. You notice where he puts Christ? He is part of that historic chain of events that started with the call of Israel to be the people of God. So... What he is saying with that chain of events is, that culminates in Christ, that God has not forsaken his world, that God is in the process of working out a salvific purpose in the world to save the nations, to save the peoples of the world. And the determinative point in all of this is the the capstone, the fulfillment is the incarnation and the cross where he provided, as we said, redemption and a sacrifice of atonement. At the right time, as Paul says in chapter 5, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the godly. He died for the very people who had shut him out. And he proves his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in that stream of events in human history, And, of course, Christianity is an historical faith like no other religion in the world. In that stream, you get an indication of God's concern about his world and his intention to save it. In Abraham, he began a process to redeem it. As we said, the center and the key to it all is in Christ. And out of his, out of Christ and his cross is to come a saving stream that is for the world. And the key to the reception of the benefits of that saving stream is faith. Do you believe? Believing is the way that all those benefits can come in to the likes of you and me. So again, we're back to that question of do you, are you believing? Now, as we said, that believing is to be in the present tense. It's not a question of did you believe or have you believed. It's a question of of are you believing? As we said in 116, that participle, to everyone who is believing, he speaks of the one who trusts. This translation says trust, but you have that present participle again, uh, pistuanti, the one who trusts, who believes, present tense continuing. His faith is reckoned for righteousness. 
I've come to feel that the importance of faith is that faith creates the right relationship whereby God can save. It it gives an openness between us and God that enables the one who wants to save us in order to just flow it through to us. There is something about faith that opens a person up. Now, it's interesting in the book of Romans, the paradigm for sin is not Sinai. That came as a shock to me. The paradigm for sin in Romans is Eden, the garden. In chapter 5, for by one man sin came into the world. That's not a Sinai. That's an Eden. Uh, then God gave one, Christ, to uh, answer the need created by the sin of that first one. And what was it that happened when uh, Eve sinned, first of all? The serpent raised a question. And the question turned into a doubt. And the doubt produced distrust. And distrust always leads to distance and defense mechanisms. If I don't trust you and I walk in a group and there you are, I either try to stay away from you as far as I can, or if I see you coming, I prepare my defenses. (laughs) So that what happened was this separation and the closing, the closure to God. And it was out of that that came the transgression. Now, uh, it's interesting. If that's what created the problem, why shouldn't the answer be in the reverse of that? If I trust you, I've opened to you. And I've become vulnerable. It's always dangerous. (laughs) Because you trust somebody, he can hurt you. (laughs) But when you trust, you open. And when you open, you can receive. And who is the God whom we worship? He is the one who is looking, waiting, searching for a chance to give to us his grace and to flow it into us. So, uh, Paul is uh, uh, speaking about the necessity of that being present, because if, it is, if it's past, that cutoff has come, and the flow of the grace is stopped. Now, uh, Abraham's faith was reckoned to him for righteousness, and he says, just as it was reckoned to him, it will be reckoned to us who believe. And again, it's that present participle, to the ones who are believing. In item 21 here, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to the believing one, to the one who is believing, the present tense. Those who believe will not be ashamed in number 22 and 1011. And there it is, it's the one who is believing, he will not be ashamed. And uh, so what he's saying, and then very interesting, when in the 9 to 11 passage where he speaks about Israel being cut out of the true vine, and Gentiles, the wild olive branch, being grafted in, why were they cut out? It was cut out primarily because of the unbelief that led to disobedience. And then... Why is it that the Gentiles have been 
grafted in. They've been grafted in because they have believed in Christ and it is faith that, that makes it possible for them to be a part of it. And then he very clearly says to the Gentiles, you know, uh, as I read this, uh, I wonder what uh, people who believe in once in grace, always in grace do with this. He says to the Gentiles, and if you don't, if you don't believe, you'll be cut off. And Israel will be grafted back in, but when it's grafted, it will be on the basis of faith. So we need to keep our faith in the present tense. A concluding word on that. Uh, item number 29. God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, joy, and peace in believing. It doesn't come because you have believed. It is righteousness, joy, and peace in believing. You have not a participle, but you have an infinitive, a present infinitive, which is dealing with the state. So the benefits of his death and his resurrection come by faith, and they must be maintained by faith and faith in the present tense. Not so much have you believed, though that is crucial. You can't enter into faith if you haven't, but are you believing? Are you keeping that relationship going? So faith is a relationship to a body of truth, to the didache. It is a relationship to a succession of historical events that culminated in Christ and the cross, through whom we get uh, peace with God, justification, circumcision of the heart. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts and we are adopted. Now, the third one that I want to get to, and that is illustrated or developed in the fourth chapter when he talks about Abraham. The first one, faith in relation to truth. The second one, faith in relation to the historical redemptive events in history. And the third is faith in the person, personal faith. And the model is Abraham. Now, let me uh, play with that for a minute. Just raise some questions. I've wondered why when he goes to pick out a model for us all, he doesn't pick out somebody like Moses, because in my book, Moses was an infinitely greater man than, than Abraham was. And he had uh, incredible influence on human history. Or why he does not pick out one of the prophets, say like uh, an Isaiah or a David. But the interesting thing is he picks out Abraham. Now, I don't think he picked him out because of his the greatness of his theology. Because as you work with Genesis, you have a hard time proving. I think you can take it by faith, but I think you're going to have a hard time proving that Moses was a total monotheist. The text doesn't say he believed there was one God. It says he believed in Yahweh. <laughs> now, when you come to Moses, the theology begins to get clarified. But you can't build that case, as far as I can see, in the book of Genesis. Yahweh speaks to Abraham, appears to Abraham. Abraham responds to Yahweh. Moses comes along and tells us, Hero is the Lord our God is one. 
Now, uh, that puzzled me a little. Does that mean the theology is not important? No, God gave us Moses. But uh, what he's saying is, I want to let you know what is at the heart of what I want. What the heart of what I want is that personal relationship of trusting faith. And uh, you didn't have a long line of history before Abraham for him to believe in the great mighty acts of God. In fact, you don't even have a miracle other than the birth of uh, his son in Abraham's life. But what do you have? You have a friendship that develops so Abraham can be called the friend of God, and uh, it is a personal relationship. Now, I think that fits this emphasis in Romans on the present tense. The two key words in the life of Abraham in the Hebrew, Vayomer and Vayera, and he said, and Yahweh said, and the other one is, and Yahweh appeared. And every time Yahweh spoke, a new chapter opens up in Abraham's life. And every time he appears, a new chapter opens up. And in each case, significantly, there is a faith response in Abraham. He speaks, so there's personal communication. And what does he, what does he say? He gives a promise to Abraham personally. Now, uh, it's interesting that he is the example for us of a person who's justified. He believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And so Paul uses that as the major text on the subject of justification. But you know, here's something I think we need to think through. So oftentimes we think of justification as a very personal experience. And almost an isolated personal experience. Where now I have become a child of God. My name is written down in heaven. And you don't scorn that. I'm not about to scorn that. But it's interesting that when God made a promise to Abraham, what was the promise? It was a promise that his desires were going to be met and his needs. But his, the meeting of his needs were in terms of a larger purpose of God that included all of the creation, the redemption of the world. And as I've lived with that, I've wondered if God ever saves anybody in isolation, really. But when he brings his grace to anybody's heart, it is intended to be a part of that program that is to reach a world. I remember a fellow who told me about his conversion in a drug colony. And he said, I wasn't seeking God, and God found me. And he said, I suddenly found myself in a totally new world. I didn't know what to do, and I was trying to find my balance, and suddenly I thought, my buddy, my buddy, I've got to find him and tell him there's a way out. Now, I wonder if the mark of the new birth is that not that concern beyond ourselves. We may find the new birth experience because of the deep need and our own burden, our own guilt, and we may be very, we will be very centered on ourselves in that. But when it comes, there, 
we find that that experience of grace is in terms of a larger purpose and a larger program. Now, uh, I don't need to remind you of the nature of, uh, of the story of Abraham. But uh, what I want to say here is that the heart of what God said to Abraham and gave to him was a promise. And uh, he said, I've chosen you, and I will give you a son, and I will give you a land, and out of that son will come a nation, but I've made you a part of something bigger that will be in terms of the last person in the world, that all the nations of the earth may be blessed through him. Now, what was the characteristic of uh, Abraham's faith? I think the thing that is moving most deeply is that uh, it's very obvious that his faith was manifested in an expectation. God came to him and said, you'll have a son. Out of him will come a nation. I'll give you real estate. And through your descendants will come the one who will be the blessing for the whole world. And Abraham's life was turned around at that point. Not on the basis of what God had done for him, but on the basis of what God was going to do for him and through him. Now, as I've lived with that, I've begun to wonder if biblical faith is not a faith that looks back to the cross and you give thanks for the benefits that come from it. But if it's to be biblical faith, there's got to be that other side to that faith, which is expectation. Now, what is he going to do for me? And the promise is, I will do something. And so Abraham is not looking back. Abraham is looking forward, arms out for a world that needs what he has found. Is our faith the kind that is expecting? And what are we expecting? Now, I love two things that are said in chapter 4 about him. Uh, you'll remember that he says, and there are two translations on this, but I think the preferable one is, that Abraham looked at his. Sometimes it's interpreted Abraham didn't look at his age. But I think the preferable interpretation, he looked at his age, some hundred years old, and said, naturally, this thing is impossible. And he looked at, some translations make it. He didn't look at Sarah's, or the barrenness of her womb, lest that would stop his faith. But he looked at the barrenness of Sarah's womb, and he believed in spite of his age and in spite of the barrenness of her womb. And he said, the one who is promised, he is able to keep his promise. And then you get this line. He is able 
to bring the dead to life. And he is able to make that which is not, that which is not, he can bring that which is not into being. Now the thing I want to close with is, he's able to bring the dead to life. So where there's death, he can bring life. And he, where there is nothing, he can bring something into being. Now I want to ask you about your circumstances. Do you ever look around you and say, dead? <laughs> is your expectation based on uh, the life that's around you? Or is your expectation based on the fact he is the one who is able to do what he promised? And he's able to bring life where there is death. But I love the another. Where there is nothing, he can bring something into being. Now, you know, I expect that's the kind of thing that has been at the heart of the faith of the people who've made radical differences in the world. Uh, my family had me reading yesterday uh, some Amy Carmichael, the ladies in my life, feeding me Amy Carmichael. And uh, it's a story of one of the early conversions that they had. Incredible battle for a girl to be delivered. The hostility of the Hindu community around. Irrational hostility. And people said, it's impossible. Why don't you go home? But apparently Amy Carmichael felt where there is nothing, he can bring something into being. And where there is death, he can bring life. Now, is there some place where things are dead that God wants you to be the instrument where life will come? And is there some place where there's nothing and God wants to bring something into being that does not exist there and you're the key to it? Because you see, the key to the nature of God in Romans seems to me this. If God be for us, uh, I read, read enough now that I, I think in terms of that Latin phrase pro nobis. If God be for us, and the God that is here is a God who's for us. And if he's for us, then even if it's death, he can, he can bring life. And even if there's nothing, he can bring something into being. And he calls an Abraham to put life where there's, so he can put life where there's death and he can put something where there's nothing. I wonder if there's any call of God that doesn't have those elements in it. So as we sit together and as we think together, you see, I think that's what you had in Francis Asbury when he looked at a continent and uh, he believed. 
I don't think you can explain Francis Ashbury's life on anything else other than he believed that God could do what he promised and that he wanted to reach his world. And so this incredible story of him keeping going. So there's where I've been thinking that's what God's been saying to me. And uh, now what's interesting is I'm 80. <laughs> I can't find anything in Romans that tells me I should quit expecting. <laughs> but the time's come to say, close it up. Uh, because the interesting thing is, Abraham was 75, and the son was not born until he was 100. But uh, you're not in that situation. <laughs> but uh, there are moments when I think the only thing that my that works that doesn't hurt between my ears, and I give grateful praise to God for that. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, if that works, intercession is a live possibility. Are you believing? Is it present tense? It's present participle. Uh, it is that faith, that believing that keeps you in touch with his spirit and keeps the, the power, the life flowing. So let's uh, believe. Father, we want to thank you for the richness of your word. We want to thank you for the pertinence of it. That when we expose ourselves to it, we always find something for us that's a challenge. Because you never quit. Your work isn't done yet. And you never want to deal with any one of us in isolation from your larger pur redemptive purposes. So make us, make us raise the question as to whether our faith makes us a part of your larger redemptive purposes in a world that so deeply needs you and your grace. But we thank you that as we think of these things, we know you're for us. And if you're for us, who can be against us? Thank you, Lord.